Welcome everyone, very excited. This is our first uh, of our series of hopefully will be many, many series over the years, but the first of our contemporary approaches to tshuva. So it's Elul, we just started Elul. Many of the classic uh, works on the concept of tshuva, which is a very complex topic and concept, uh, were written several hundred years ago. But uh, the reason why I like this series is because in the last uh, less than hundred years, there have been uh, what we would call contemporary giants in the Jewish world who have addressed this topic and each in their own way. What's a fascinating study is taking a look one at a time. We'll go through four different works over the course of the next month as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah, looking at some of these contemporary giants as to how they approach this concept of tshuva. Some are more philosophical, some more practical, uh, some more esoteric, and just to see how it is addressed in our own modern world. And the one that I'd like to start with tonight is uh, Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, who was the first rabbi of pre-state, the first Ashkenazi rabbi of pre-state Israel was called Palestine, of course, at the time. He died in 1935, so he died 13 years before he ever saw the realization of his dream to see a a modern state of Israel. And he was uh, a larger-than-life personality. So what I'd like to do is uh, he... His writing is, was in a very flowery, poetic Hebrew, very, very difficult to understand. So we're going to learn snippets and quotes as we try to understand a little bit of, uh, of his particular uh, approach. What I'd like to do is start with a quick uh, biography. Um, really, Rav Cook needs an entire series just on his life itself. We'll do a very quick biography just to set the table for what we're going to be addressing tonight, and then we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. So on, on page four, on the bottom of page four on your sheet, I have the uh, brief biography that we will uh, we'll start with. Um, so just to read this and talk a little bit about it. So he was born in 1865. He was born in the, uh, was the Russian Empire at the time. He was the uh, oldest of eight children born to his parents who were himself, his father learned in the yeshiva of Allah and he was born into a rabbinic family. Um, and he became, as I mentioned, the first chief rabbi of uh, pre-state Israel. Uh, he really, uh, he grew up in, in, uh, in Russia he made his way in various small towns where he was the Rav, always very quickly outgrowing. You can imagine Rav Cook, there's the Rav in a small shtetl of like 50 families. It would only last so long uh, until he was on to the next place. And he makes his way to Eretz Yisrael for the first time in 1905. He becomes the rabbi in Jaffa, in Yafo, in 1905. When the World War breaks out in 1914, he actually was in Germany at the time, which was a bad place to be if you were not a German citizen. And he escapes via Switzerland to London, and he spends the war years trapped in London. He could not get back to the land of Palestine during those war years, which he eventually writes about because during those four war years was, of course, the declaration of great uh, Sir Balfour in 1917, which, was, which set the Jewish world ablaze. Uh, with the Balfour Declaration, and he was in London at the time of that declaration, which he felt was very uh, messianic and prophetic that it should be, that he was there during the time of this great declaration. Eventually, after the war, he makes it back to Eretz Yisrael, he becomes the chief rabbi in Jerusalem in 1919, and then the chief rabbi in all of Palestine in 1921. None of that was without tremendous controversy. Um, we'll, we'll have to spend a lot of time here Hashem, uh, in, in future sessions talking about their early years in, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, Rav Sonnenfeld, Rav, uh, Rav Kook. Uh, hashkafically in philosophy, there was tremendous controversy surrounding Rav Kook, but that was all philosophical. As a person, he was just a recognized Talmudic genius and a saintly, pious Person, despite the fact that everything he did in the early land in the early years in Israel was fraught with controversy, which is just a fascinating study, which again we'll get to other another time. That's not really our topic for tonight, um, but that's where uh, he is. I, I would tonight was his, today was his yard site. I did not know that when we scheduled this class uh, today, the third day of Elul, Gimel Elul was his eighty seventh yard site. It happened to be uh, that today was his yard site, and uh, I, I don't know this for sure, but I feel pretty confident that there is no way that he would have believed on his deathbed that we would still be in Gullus 87 years later. There's just no way that he could have imagined after what he saw by 1935 that we weren't home already. It just would be impossible. And forget that we're not home, we went through the Holocaust. I just, but he didn't live through that. He died again in 1935 uh, before, uh, before all of that. He was a tremendous visionary. Um, in terms of he lived in the present, but he just saw the future unfolding in front of him. He was living in a very secular, anti-religious yeshuv, um, but he saw everything in messianic ways of this was the redemption of the Jewish people, even though nothing around him 
was aligned with that. The people were not talking, the people were secular, the people were anti-religious. They weren't thinking about Mashiach and they weren't thinking about redemption. They were just thinking about creating a socialist Jewish new Jew, which was totally anti-Torah, but he saw where it was going. He saw what the goal was, despite the fact that the world around him, which is why there was so much controversy, because the religious community who were living in the reality of what was there were very much at odds with the early uh, settlers in the land of Israel. There's so much to talk about that, but again, I want to stay focused on, on his ideas on, uh, on Tshuva. He was a tremendous fighter against social injustice. He was a poet and a mystic. And those two things really is what makes his writing so hard to understand because it's so deeply um, based on Kabbalah and, and poetic. He didn't write prose. He wrote poetry. And uh, even, uh, it's almost impossible for non-Hebrew speakers, I'm told even for Hebrew speakers, very hard to really understand the full depths of what it is uh, that he was often writing. And he seamlessly combined two worlds of his parents. He was a son of a Litvak father, a person who went to yeshiva in Valazhin and was all about limit Torah, learning Torah, focused on Torah. That was, that was the way of life. But his mother was a descendant of the Chabad movement into Hasidus and joy and singing and all that goes along with Hasidus. And he just seamlessly combined them into one. And that was really what his life was about, seamlessly combining different things into one. I remember the very first time I heard Rabbi Ari Berman, who's currently the president of Yeshiva University, the first time I heard him speak after he became uh, president of YU, uh, was at a conference we were in Florida at the time. And he spoke about when he moved to Israel. He, uh, he, he was brought back from Israel to take this position in YU. And when he moved to Israel, I remember him saying he had two major shocks. One was that when people referred to the Rav, they were no longer referring to Rav Soloveitchik, they were now referring to Rav Kook. That was his major adjustment that when people would just quote the Rav or talk about the Rav, it was a new uh, figure that they were referring to. And number two, he said, growing up in YU and a student of the Rav, and the Rav students really at this point, everything was about conflict. The Rav always spoke about two contrasting ideas, turmoil, and the conflict that's created from that. And Rav Cook always spoke about coming together, always spoke about bringing things and synthesizing different things. And there wasn't conflict, there was unity. And the world was moving towards unity. And it was, I remember Berman saying, it was like, it was such a different worldview from Tzvedin and two different ways of looking at things and contrast and conflict to really everything is a seamless whole. But that was Rav Kook's uh, entire uh, approach. And that created a very deeply original thinker. Um, he was a poet of the soul, uh, universal creativity, and the unceasing natural song of all being. And uh, we'll see some of this in the way that he expresses himself in his own words. Um, Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine like, used to quote, who I like to quote as well, I like to quote Rabbi Wine, who was quoting Rav Kook, when, that when Rav Kook was asked to define his own philosophy, he said it in one very simple phrase. My philosophy is, hakol oleh. Everything is rising. Everything is going up. Everything is getting holier. Everything is getting closer to redemption. Everything is moving in the right direction. And as we'll see, that's going to really identify his ideas of tshuva. Everything is moving, and it's moving up. So get on the train, because that's the way... That, uh, that things are going. So with that, let's take a look at some of, his own, uh, some of his own words. Back to the front. I want to start with a poem that's actually not his poem, which is a little bit uh, ironic, given that he was a, poetry, uh, a poet. This poem was written, it's a very short poem, you see in the top of uh, uh, side number one, um, that was written by Yaakov David Shulman. Uh, Rabbi Shulman translated, Rabbi Cook wrote, his books were called Orot, uh, which literally translates into uh, lights, all those white books that you've seen in... Uh, uh, the Shas Lavan, as it's called in Israel, the white Shas, all of the books from Rav Kook. And he goes, Orot HaTshuva is specifically the one that was written, gar- gathered from all of his writings on Tshuva. Rabbi Shulman translated that into English. So this poem that he wrote is from somebody who was immersed in the writings of Rav Kook. And this is what he wrote after working on that. So it's a nice introduction from somebody who spent a lifetime, so to speak, working on this, on specifically on Rav Kook's approach to Tshuva. Tshuva means return. That's what the literal translation, of course, of the word. Return. It is the return to God, the return to health, the return to our soul, the return to the universe, the return to a mended planet, the return to happiness, the return to home. Give me some thoughts. What strikes you about this particular? What's here and what's not here in this poem describing Tshuva. Let's talk about the easy one. What's here? What, are, what jumps out at you of this description of Rav Kook's approach to Tshuva in these, in these few words? 
Excellent. Well, that's what I was going to get to. What's not here? What's not here is sin. There's, there's nothing here about sin. The, the most classic, if you were to just start anything, about, okay, tell me something about tshuva. The first words out of my mouth is, well, I did something wrong, and now I need to repent. And all the stages of repentance that go into it. And in this little description, that's missing. It doesn't talk at all about sin. But what does he talk about, if you have to describe? There's a, there's a very universal approach. A, a return to health. Have, have you ever heard anyone talk about tshuva as eating more vegetables and exercising? Spiritual. It's, it's a very spirit... Well, he doesn't say that. And, it, and, he, and he doesn't mean that. It's, it's a complete... All of it. A complete return to health is part of tshuva. It's a very universalistic approach that's not limited to sin and coming back from sin, but health to the universe, to a mended planet, to happiness to home. Um, and we'll see in his writings why Rabbi Shulman uses this or sees this or feels this in describing Rav Kook, because it's going to be a very universal approach to, uh, to tshuva. But I want to take a look at a Gemara. The Gemara, of course, is not Rav Kook's, but he's going to have a unique approach to understanding it. So let's take a look at that and then uh, uh, see some of, again, Rav Kook's writings in his own words uh, about tshuva. The Gemara is on the bottom of the, in the box in, uh, on page one. The Gemara Mesech is Nedarim. It's quoted in Mesech Pesachim and elsewhere as well. The Gemara says, Tanya, we learned in a so Shiva Dvarim Nivru'u Kodem Shenivra Ha'olam. Seven things were created before the world was created. Now, before we read what they are, you could be reading along in your eyes with, by yourself, I'm sure. But before you read them, if you read such a statement from the sages that there were seven things created before the world was created, what's the meaning? What's the significance? What's the message that Chazal are telling us that these seven things were created before the world? Foundation or what? You need it for the world. The world cannot exist without them. If, if I need these things before I create the world, so it has to be that these are critical components that the world could not exist, continue to exist, or be brought into existence without them. Now, we could talk, of course, about all seven. We're only going to be talking about the one that's relevant to us. Uh, we're just reading through the list. Torah, of course, tshuva is on our list. Gan Eden, Gehenim, you need a place of reward and punishment. Kisei the heavenly throne, the Beis HaMikdash itself. Now, the Beis HaMikdash, obviously, it can't be the sticks and stones of the Beis HaMikdash, which did not exist when the world was created, and it doesn't exist now when we're still here. Ushmo uh, Shel Mashiach, in the name of Mashiach, which is, of course, a very interesting way of describing, you don't, it just should have said, really, concept of Mashiach. Shmo Shel Mashiach is an interesting thing. You think about that, not for uh, tonight. So what does it mean that Shuva was created before the world was created? Well, we, so the most classic understanding of that would be that Hashem knew that all of us would be failures to some degree or another. Let's just say it straight, right? That way we could accept and acknowledge and own that which we do wrong. On some level, we were all going to mess up. And therefore, He could not create us without creating a, a method to fix us. Right? If everything in our life... And as this is a classic example that's always spoken about when we get to Rosh Hashanah, particularly more Yom Kippur time, there are certain things in life that are irreversible. That there are certain mistakes that we make. Um, there are certain accidents which happen to a person's physical body. And that's it. There's no reversing certain a person loses a finger in an accident. That's it. The finger is gone and we, it doesn't grow back. And so, okay, in today's modern world, we could sort of compensate for certain things. But there are things that happen and then that's it. It's over. If our spiritual life was like that, that as soon as we ever messed up or did something wrong, there was no way to fix it, we wouldn't last very long. So that's the classic understanding of this Gemara, that tshuva was created before, the, it's on the list of things that were created before the world because we couldn't make it without it. So we're going to see that Rav, Rav Kook has a, uh, a little twist, a change an addition, so to speak, to that, uh, that understanding. One more piece of Gemara we need to learn before we get to, uh, before we get to Rav Kook, and that is the Gemara, uh, the bottom of the box. A, a series of statements that the Gemara makes in Meseches uh, Yoma, uh, discussing the greatness of tshuva. Think about all of these things when you think about that poem that we started with. So the Gemara starts in the name of Rabbi Chama, Gedola tshuva, how great is repentance? Shemevia refuos le'olam. It brings healing to the world. What would you think the Gemara is referring to? If, you just, if we just started with this in a vacuum, that tshuva brings healing to the world, what, what's that referring to? What kind of healing? 
You think spiritual healing? Maybe. What are the other options? What kind of refuah is brought to the world when a person does tshuva? Rebalances the uh, situation of a man God. That's the refuah? Yes. Okay, could be. Let's continue to see the whole list. Says Reb Levi, How great is tshuva? Shemagas ad kiseya kavod. It reaches the heavenly throne. Number three, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, how great is tshuva? It hastens the redemption, the geula is brought forward. Meshulakish has a discussion which is often quoted that tshuva is so great that it makes your intentional sins, it downgrades them to uh, unintentional sins. The Gemara says, that's it? I thought it did even more than that. I thought tshuva not only downgrades from intentional to unintentional, but that it makes it as a zchuyos, as if it's uh, a merit, so the Gemara distinguishes exactly the kind of tshuva, but you see clearly the power of tshuva is to transform sin to something else. And lastly, it is ma'arecha shenosav shal adam. It expands or lengthens the years of a person's life. So you, know, you see a number of different concepts of tshuva. It expands life, it brings refuah, it brings healing, it reaches the heavenly throne, it brings redemption, all of this to the concept of, uh, of tshuva. Rav Kook, as it, just to summarize some of what, as we're going we're gonna, to, we'll see inside in a moment, just one more word of introduction. I know there's a lot of introductions to get through. We're going to get to it in a moment. Um, Rav Moshe Tarragon, who's a Rebbe in, uh, in Gush, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, has a, a short description that I just want to share and as he summarizes Rav, Rav Kook's entire approach to Tshuva, which is worth starting. Before we get to individual pieces, let's just learn it as a, uh, as a whole. And in his language, which I just want to quote because uh, I don't want to take credit for it, it says, as this follows, the whole world, this is going to be Tarragon's understanding of Rav Kook, is in a constant state of tshuva. And what that means is it's not an, an isolated moment. It's not a moment of reverting from something bad to something good, but it's an evolution. It's an evolution of the world from a state of imperfection to a state of perfection. And in Rav Kook's which is a very Kabbalistic approach, the world was created imperfect. Created imperfectly. Why did Hashem create a world with imperfections? That's a different question. But that's what is. Once that is, the concept of tshuva is moving the world from imperfection into a place of, uh, of perfection. And that means the entire world, the cosmos, the environment, society, the human being, the human body, politics, health, the world is moving from a place that's not right into a place that is. And that is the ultimate surge. It's, a, it's like a surge of energy that the world is moving towards perfection. My, I, I had a, one of my children recently, I'll leave the, the identification marks out, literally said to me two days ago, you know, he said, I was just thinking, how cool would it be if in the world you didn't have to lock your car at night? Like the world was in a place that you didn't have to worry that someone was going to do something wrong to you. Like a, like a young child, like just had this thought, like this like moment of revelation of I live in a world of danger. I live in a world in which I'm being taught I need to protect myself and my things. Wouldn't it be cool to live in a world that that wasn't true? Like, that's awesome. I hope you hold on to that for your entire life this ideal approach as to what life... And there are certain pockets that are like that. Communities, small areas in which, you know, you could leave your door unlocked at night because everything is safe. There are very few and far in between, but that would be a perfected world in which everyone is honest and everyone is good and everyone cares and looks out for each other. The whole world... That is a vision of what should be. And from the moment the world was created with its imperfections, we're working towards that. Like a stock market. There are ups and downs and ups and downs. And sometimes the downs plummet, like 70 years ago, in which the world is in upside down chaos. And there are moments in which we go in the right direction. But it's, it's, it's moving, in Rav Cook's vision, towards that. We're heading towards a world of redemption, a world of perfection, a world in which individuals and nations and then the whole world society is working towards a recognition of Hashem as king, as creator, and everybody's doing the right thing 
all of the time. When a person sins, when a person sins, he's falling out of sync with the direction of the world. Because the whole world as a whole is going up, the whole world is zigging, and he's zagging. And then when he's zagging, and what feeling does that create? We're going to see this again in in his side. It creates the feeling of guilt that a person has when he sins, is being off kilter, he's out of sync with the world, the world energy, and himself. Because he's supposed to be going in a certain direction, and he goes in the wrong direction. We think Jewish guilt comes from our mothers. It, it also does. But it really comes deep from within us, this feeling of, I, I just, you know, we, it happens in many things in life. Like, I'm going in the wrong direction. That was a, I want a certain thing from myself in life, and this was a step in the wrong direction. And whenever we take a step in the wrong direction, so it doesn't feel right. It feels disconnected. It feels lonely. It feels disassociated from the overall existence. And all of that, as we will now take a look uh, inside. Now this, lastly, one last point before we start reading some of his own words. One last point. Um, is not always in reference to sin. Meaning I don't have to actually sin to feel like I'm not going in the right direction that I want to be going in. Doesn't require sin. There's three stages. There's going in the right direction, there's doing nothing, and then there's actually doing something wrong. Even when I'm doing nothing, I'm not going in the right direction. And I I don't necessarily have to have sinned to feel like I'm not on train. I'm not on board. I'm not going where I should be or doing what I should be. And uh, let's look. With all of that, now let's take a look at his actual words. Let's start with uh, source number one on the top of page number two. First of all, just another quote I didn't even put here. He writes, this is Ruf Cook's words, Chuva does not come to embitter life. You know, sometimes if you've had a... Uh, there are certain experiences a person can have in yeshiva and seminary where one has this sense that Chuva is somehow this terrible process and it's going to be horribly painful and it's fire and brimstone and it's all bad. Ruf Cook writes, it's, it's not to embitter life, it's to make it pleasant. It's to align our existence with really what we want to be and who we want to and what we want to be doing. He writes, Tshuva occupies the greatest portion of Torah in life. And that's a very strong statement. Tshuva occupies the greatest portion. These are quotes, uh, translated quotes of his, from his introduction to Arot HaTshuva, this first one. The greatest portion of Torah in life, upon it, all personal and communal hopes are founded. Without Tshuva, you have no personal hope and no communal hope. Because as we're going to see again, this idea of we're moving in the right direction as a community, as individuals, and everything is based on it. He writes somewhere else, He's very, he's, he's very upset about the labels that are put on the Jewish community. He says, we have new labels. He says, they're new. Charedim and Chilonim, or whatever the version was in the 1920s and 30s, but it's the same idea, identifying the same groups. The religious and the secular. And he says, this is a horrible thing. It didn't used to exist in Jewish society where we had labels for different groups. And he says, both of those labels are a disaster for tshuva. Now, again, in his world, tshuva is the centerpiece, as we just, the greatest portion of all of Torah of the Jewish life. Why are these two labels a disaster for tshuva? See, he says, because each label, each group says, is not for me. The religious group says, tshuva, you know who has to do tshuva? Look at all of these secular Jews in the land of Israel. Shabbos and Kashros, there's no mikvah. Yeah, you want to do tshuva? I'll tell you who should do tshuva. All of them. And the secular Jew, you would speak, and Rav Cook actually went in 1913, he took a whole group of a bunt room, including Rav Zunnenfeld, who was his primary, I don't know if he was antagonist, but on the opposite side of his Ashkafic philosophical approach, they went on a tshuva mission. They traveled throughout the land of Israel to all these secular and anti-religious uh, moshavim and kibbutzniks, and they, they tried to, uh, they were one of the first Kirov movements in the land of Israel. Um, so he was in, involved in that, and he said, the secular world, if you speak to them about tshuva, they say, tshuva, that's a spiritual religious concept. That's not for us. We're not religious. Go talk to the religious people about tshuva. So of course, says, no, is a Jewish concept. It's actually a universal concept for everybody, but if you have a label of religious or secular, so then right away you say, it's not for me. Tshuva's for the... Chuvas for the non-religious, and the non-religious will say chuvas for the religious. And meanwhile, nobody's doing what they need to do, and the world is stagnant and not moving in the direction that it needs to uh, that it needs to go. Um, now, as much as as much as chuva is 
this universal concept not necessarily related to sin. It certainly is related to sin. So let's take a look at his first comment as it relates to sin in section uh, source number two. Even if a person is disposed to stumble and to flaw his righteousness and ethical conduct. So he writes, everybody's a tzaddik. But okay, some people are disposed to stumble. They start, we start off as tzaddikim. A person is disposed to stumble and they flaw their righteousness, which is a great way of describing you know, where, where are we starting from? So he's like, we're all righteous. Okay, sometimes we have flaws, we have dents, we have errors in our righteousness. This does not flaw his perfection. Now this is going to be such a beautiful statement. Now I would have said, of course it does. If, I'm, if I was righteous and I stumbled, then I've just created a flaw in my righteousness. He says, no, that's not a, a statement of your imperfection. Because the essence of his perfection is in his established longing and desire to achieve perfection. This is such a beautiful statement. It needs to be on everyone's refrigerator. When you wake up in the morning, this is the, after Moda'ani, this is on the list of things to say every single morning. The essence of perfection is in the desire and yearning for perfection. It's so powerful. You know, we're human beings, so we're never gonna achieve perfection. By definition, it's impossible. A human being will not achieve perfection because there's only one thing in the world that's perfect, and that's the Rebona Shalom. So we're not going to get there. So where is the, where, within what does the perfection of a human being lie? If it's not actually perfection, what it is, is in the desire and the yearning to achieve it. To be better every day than the day before. That is the task of a Jew every day. I want more today. I want to yearn to be better today than I was yesterday. That's my mission. And that is very, very powerful. I think, I, I think I've said this at the, the Prabhu Shabbos. I don't remember. You'll tell me. I'm for sure going to say it in two weeks on our first official uh, Shabbos, I'm sure. But I, I'm often asked. You'll say, I heard this right. It's okay. You could hear from me many, many times. Like, where are we going as a shul? What's your goal? What's your vision? Big question. The answer is, I have no idea. I have no idea. I should know where you're going. I don't know where I'm going. Well, how am I supposed to know that? The only vision I have for myself, for the shul, is that tomorrow, everybody affiliated with the shul does more tomorrow than they did today. It could be in the area of davening, in learning, in chesed, in staka. There are lots of areas to do more in. But that every day, when we, we do a little bit more. Where will that take us? I don't know. Wherever it takes us, it takes us. But we're just, we're moving. Everything is rising, and we're going to jump on that train and make sure that we're doing that. So that every year Rosh Hashanah, you take like years at a time and you measure, okay, you sit down, there's moments to think on Rosh Hashanah, you're sitting in shul for a lot of time. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Like, where am I? I just know I'm in a different place than I was last year. That's what I know. In what way? I don't know. Every person will, will find their own path. Whether, again, it's in learning, it's in davening, it's in chesed, it's in relationships. Something. More. This phrase of Rav Kook summarizes all of it. The perfection, the essence of perfection is in the established longing and desire to achieve it. That's, that's all. I, I just want to get there. However long it takes, whatever steps I take, that's the longing. It's the nature of the human spirit to go on a straight path. Meaning, we're, our nature is to go straight. Things get in the way and we get crooked along the way. But our nature is, is to be straight. Uh, as he continues, and when a person has turned aside from the path, it happens, we all stumble. He's fallen into sin. If his spirit has not yet been completely corrupted, meaning as long as we don't corrupt ourselves and sit in it, but as long as we're not completely corrupted, we're not going to want to stay in a state of of sin, as long as we have not completely corrupted that, this natural sense of straightness saddens his heart and he wastes away from pain and he moves with alacrity to return and repair that which is crooked until he feels that his sin has been erased. This is very important. Let's take a step back before we go over this paragraph. He describes the idea of pain from sin, a spiritual pain of sin. Now that is a tremendous gift. In the physical world we live in, one of the greatest gifts we have that Hashem gave us is the idea of pain. That when something is wrong, we feel it. Now, we don't like being in pain, but it's a gift. Because you could imagine, of course, if we didn't feel the pain when something is wrong, 
we wouldn't take care of the problem and we'd be in much worse shape if a person put his hand near fire and didn't feel the searing heat, he would leave it there until it's burnt. And it's a diagnosis. If a person doesn't feel pain, it's a terrible way to, it's, it's a very dangerous thing for a person not to feel pain. And if, heaven forbid, there should be a limb that doesn't feel pain, what does that mean about that limb? It's dead already. When you no longer feel pain, then all the nerves are gone and now the limb is dead. Pain is a sign of life. It is a sign of life. It's a sign of something is wrong, fix it. And we take this for granted, but we know that as soon as you feel a pain, it's like, oh, I gotta go to the doctor. But but it's a sign of life. If we don't feel pain anymore, then uh, there's nothing left to do. In the spiritual world, says Rav Kook, it's the same exact thing. That guilt that we spoke about a few moments ago, guilt, the pain, the sense of, ah, don't feel right, I don't like where I am, all of those things are the spirits, our neshama telling us there's something off right now. Fix it. And it's a sign of life. It's a sign that the neshama is still alive and well and saying, new, come on. We need more. We could be doing better. There's more to accomplish. And that sense of, I just don't feel right. Is So he writes, so going back to the paragraph we just finished. When a person, as long as he's not completely corrupted, meaning he's still alive, he's spiritually still alive, so it saddens his heart that he's done something wrong, that he's not exactly where he wants to be. And he wastes away from pain and moves with alacrity to return and repair that. And this is one of the fundamental principles in the contents of Tshuva Rest, that there's a sense of, I want, I want more. I want to feel like I'm rising. I'm going somewhere. I'm accomplishing something. The soul of the Jew is always, is never at rest. There's a very uneasy feeling. We try to push it away. But there's that sense that from deep within our kishkes of there's more to be done. There's more that I can be doing. There's more to life. And that's a sense of being alive. It's a good, healthy sense that we have that we need to take it and harness it and, uh, and keep, on, uh, keep on going. Let's keep going. Source number three. So natural regret, which burns in the heart, is one of the traits of tshuva from the soul's pain at its stagnation rather than ascent. And all the more so if it feels descent within itself. And here again, he, he describes, this is what we spoke about, the three levels. There's, you know, milk, flesheks, and parv. You have ascent, and you have descent. Well, what's in the middle? Just, what does he call it? Stagnation. Just stagnation. This is the sense that we, you know, it's just the same routine. I'm in a, this is rote. I do the same things that I always do. I sit in the same seat that I always sat and I do the same. I, I give the same amount of staka. I daven the same. I learn the same or I don't learn the same. Everything is the same. And I just feel completely stat. I, I'm not worse than I was last year, but I'm just the same. The exact same. That also, that troubles us. Just to, be, to come back to that same Rosh Hashanah, come back, you know, it's in the same seat, and it's like another year, and I don't, I don't know, I'm, in the, I'm the same person. So that is regret. Regret in the heart of a soul, says Rav Kook. Um, pain of stagnation rather than ascent, because you got to be rising. you got to be moving. you got to be growing. When a Jew doesn't feel like he's growing... Um, I don't, I don't think it, I, w- I wouldn't think a change has to be painful. Why, why do you mean by that? Like change can be, I mean, the change can be like for the good, change can be for the bad. You want to make a change, you have to make a decision. Decision is sometimes fraught with great difficulty. Yes. Difficulty requires an internal uh, disagreement, controversy. And please have a certain amount of uh, pain for the soul. So, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I could be, I'm not sure how to answer. That's an esoteric question. I, I don't know. I know it's an esoteric question. Yeah, we're so I guess it's appropriate. That's for sure. Um, but I don't know how to be painful. I know I agree change is hard. I think we could all agree to that. Change is difficult. Change comes with struggle. I don't know that, it, I don't know that, I, I don't know that painful is the right word. I, I could hear that, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I, I would use the word painful to describe uh, pain, uh, change. Certainly not spiritual change. I can tell you, like, moving is painful. I'll give you. You move from one place to another, it's physically painful, right? It's difficult, uh, right? That, that kind of change. Like dealing with high school-aged children when you move them is painful. Um, but like change, let's say a person says, you know, I'm going to daven min chamarv. 
That's hard. Like, I don't usually come. I'm going to make time in my schedule. That's hard. That's a challenge. I, I just don't know that I would call it painful. I mean, some people might call it painful. Um, it's unsettling. But again, but it's not, again, that's why I don't mean, I don't know if that's painful. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Yeah, but that, that I'll give you. Okay, let's move on. Number four, wickedness, which resides, there's the idea of being out of, out of sync with the world. Wickedness, which resides in the depth of the soul when one does not desire to abandon it, meaning if you let, let the wickedness sit and you don't try to abandon it, destroys life's equilibrium. And again, this is Rav Cook speaking about the, the balance and the equilibrium, and then wickedness destroys that, and the connection between one's soul and all that exists, the universe and its greater and lesser parts, destruction of that harmony causes the great pains, and when it penetrates to one's spirit, and it, then it causes great suffering in the form of trembling, anger, chutzpah, shame, and hopelessness. So what I wanted to bring out from this quote is he sees in, in our personalities that this anger, chutzpah, shame, hopelessness is being out of equilibrium in which our life direction is out of whack with the way that it should be. Whether it's just stagnant or actually going down, that causes these uh, sentiments, these emotions from being, uh, from being out, of, uh, out of shape. I want to take a look at two of his longer, uh, longer pieces. Um, let's start with number five as we're just going in order on the bottom of page, uh, bottom of, of page two. He discusses, in Rav Kook's view of tshuva, two different types. And you can divide it into two different types. One what he calls a sudden tshuva and gradual tshuva. And it's always... This is where his, his litvak, his uh, yeshiva background comes in in terms of identifying the different, uh, different roles. What's the difference between sudden tshuva and gradual tshuva? So sudden tshuva is the result of a spiritual lightning flash that enters the soul in a single moment. Uh, I, I hope that uh, everyone has had a, an opportunity to experience that at some point in life in which there's just this aha moment of clarity of whatever is in our life that we're not doing or things that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing. And it, it's literally in his life, it's a lightning bolt of it, it, literally the, you know, the reason why the, the sages like to talk about that is a dark, starry, dark night of rainy night and then there's a lightning flash and all of a sudden you can see the whole you know, environment around you but then the lightning flash goes away and it's dark again. And in that moment, there's a moment of total clarity. And in that moment, there's energy and you're ready to take something on. You're ready to commit, to do and to change. And in his language, a person recognizes the evil and ugliness of the sin. He's transformed into another person. He feels within himself a complete turnaround towards good. And the tshuva then appears as a result of the appearance of an inner spiritual quality, a great spiritual influence. And like all of a sudden, like a person makes massive changes in their life. It happens a lot in the uh, late teenage, early 20s is a time that's in person, in a person's life that's ripe for this, but it can happen after that as well, even though we get much more set in our ways as we, as we age. It's just, and you see this sometimes happen, like a person just, like, like from one moment to another, they just, there's a change. But that's very, uh, not just rare, but it's rare to hold on to that. Uh, Dr. Pelkovitz likes to speak about this and speaking about ritualizing it. And when you have those moments of clarity, um, to take something on that will ritualize that moment. Because the, the, the inspiration dissipates very quickly. But a practice will stay. Like let's say, for example, you know, let's say a person had a certain illness in, their, in themselves, in their family, and then a tremendous miracle happens and they have that lightning flash. In that moment, they're like, I'm going to change my life forever. Okay, that, right now you have that feeling. But if you don't ritualize it into, and the way I'm going to do that is, I'm going to, I'm going to come to Midchamar right now. i use that as an example. Okay, now what's going to happen is the inspiration is going to be gone within 36 hours. But if you ritualize it and you make it a thing, you'll keep whatever the inspiration, you'll, you'll keep doing that, whatever. Ritualize. That's what Dr. Puck has always, I've heard them speak about that many, many times. But that's all based on a sudden flash. What's the other option? So then there's a the gradual tshuva process. There's not flashed within this person, the last paragraph on page two, not flashed within this person a lightning flash that would cause a transformation from the depth of evil to good, but he feels that he must engage in a process of improving his ways, his will, his thoughts. In this course, he proceeds little by little to conquer the way of straightness. He rectifies his traits, improves his deeds, teaches himself how to grow. This is, a, it, it's not a lightning flash, but it's just an approach to life. This is the approach of better today than yesterday and better tomorrow than I was today. Small little steps, but it's an approach. This is what, uh, for those who were at the Sunday morning, a balalia. 
person wants to be always on a track of change, of growth, of making things different. It's gradual. There are no major changes, but it's just a constant. And there's no major flash if a person says to you like three years later, what made you decide to do this? Like, I don't know. I, there wasn't a, it wasn't an event. There wasn't a flash. It just was, I decided I, w- I want to live always with more. And I looked for things to be able to, to find them. And those are the two different types of tshuva. You know, one of the other things that, uh, you know, I like to mention is a uh, person, you know, inspiration is, a, is this classic term. And, and we like to throw it around, an inspiring talk, an inspiring speech, an inspiring program, everything inspiring. You know, if you come, I'll tell you this right now, if you come, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and you come with the attitude of, Rabbi, you know, uh, inspire me. You do your job and you sit back and you wait for the inspiring drush. I can tell you one thing for sure. You will not be inspired. I can guarantee there's, there's nothing that I can say that will create inspiration. But if a person comes looking for inspiration, not you do it and I'm just going to sit back, you'll find inspiration everywhere. Shul's a great place to find it, but you'll find it everywhere if you're looking for it. If you're looking to find inspiration, looking to grow, looking to find things in life that move you forward. But no one else can inspire. You, you have to want it. No one, it's a false, the language is like, you know, this person inspired me. You have to want it. You have to want it. And so sudden tshuva, there are these flashes. You can grab onto it. But the gradual tshuva is this constant uh, looking for that. On that, he addresses as well specific tshuva and general tshuva. So here also he addresses that there's a particular tshuva which corresponds to specific sins or many sins. And the person, you know, goes through the process, places his sin before his face, he regrets it, he's anguished, all the processes the Rambam talks about, the Machzer talks about on Yom Kippur, there was a specific thing that I did wrong, and now I feel bad, I'm never going to do it again, I want to change my ways and, and make it... Uh, and make it right. And just his, his words are worth reading. His soul climbs upward until he is freed from the enslavement to sin. He feels within himself the holy freedom, pleasant to his weary soul. He grows progressively cured. I mean, it, it's so poetic. But there's another uh, feeling, skip down to like two paragraphs, there's another feeling of general non-specified tshuva. And this is where there is no sin or sins of the past that enter his awareness, but in general he feels within himself oppressed that he's filled with sin and the light of Hashem is not shining upon him. And this is the idea that, that this really sums up the, the idea that we've been trying to address this entire evening. There's a concept of tshuva of sin. There was a sin, there's something that was done wrong, I need to fix it. I've hurt somebody financially, physically, I've hurt myself spiritually, I need to fix it. Okay, there's a whole process. Recognize it, acknowledge it, change your behavior, regret it, you say the vidui, confess it, and move on. But then there's another level of what he calls general tshuva that just says, I want to live more. I, I don't have a specific sin in mind. There, there's nothing, I, I, I come to Rosh Hashanah specific year, and I'm like, it's not that I'm thinking of something that I did wrong. I just want more. I just want to be higher. I just want more spiritual light. I just want to feel like I'm going in the right direction. And there's nothing that I, nothing wrong that I did specifically. I just want to be better. If you put it into the context of relationships, you know, there's a, a minig, I'm sure, here it happens here as well. And every Yom Kippur, you know, people run around, do you mochel me, you mochel me, you mochel me, you mochel me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And you're like, I don't, did you do anything to me? Like, there's something I don't know about that you want to tell me? Like, what are you, why are you asking me for, for forgiveness? So, okay, there's a minig people like to run. The, the truth is that very often the people who we really need to be asking forgiveness from, we don't, we don't speak to them. It's the people who we know we're fine with that we walk around and say, like, you forgive me, you forgive me, I forgive me, you forgive me, you forgive me, I got everybody's happy. But in the context of those relationships, now, again, sometimes we actually did something wrong. We've actually gotten into a dispute. We said something offensive. We didn't do something. And then we actually need to address that. But then, if you think about relationships, and think about like the relationships that are, are, are most meaningful to us, with a spouse, with parents, with children, maybe an in-law, um, and if you were to have that conversation with them, you wouldn't say, are you mocham? I didn't do anything wrong. You're just saying, I want to have a better relationship. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I never said anything wrong. I never forgot to send you a birthday card. I, I have nothing. I'm not asking for mechila because I did something. I'm just saying our relationship is not where it should be, and I want it to be better. 
Right? You can imagine such a thing. There are probably lots of people in our life who we like to say that too, or we should. Or that, that is a different kind of tshuva that does not require sin. That's the tshuva that refers, that, excuse me, Rav speaks about in terms of a general with ourselves and with Hashem. We're going to say a lot of alchets on Yom Kippur. There's a long list of things that we identify that we may have done wrong. And sometimes I'm sure as you go through the experience, like, yes, this one speaks to me, this one doesn't speak to me. But there's a general concept that we're trying to tap into in this month and the 10 days Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur that's not reflecting a specific behavior that's just saying, I want to come close. Rav Cook understands the phrase, v'chazireinu b'tshuva shleimot lefanecha. What does that mean? Tshuva shleima, complete and whole tshuva. He writes somewhere else, not in this, in this particular quote that I have here. Tshuva, without the word shleima, is I did this wrong and now I fixed it. Tshuva shleima is finding the core aspect of my personality that allowed that to happen. Not a specific behavior. I want to change the way I live that allowed that to happen to be able to, uh, to accomplish all of these uh, all of these things. And those are, again, specific tshuva, which we need to do, but then a general tshuva, just, which is a way of, uh, a way of living. Okay, let's uh, uh, tie it all up on the bottom of page four, last couple of, uh, last couple of quotes. As he describes the leaping flames of tshuva, the currents of tshuva, it's, again, it's a current of the world moving in a direction, the individual and the community surge forward. This is, again, these ideas that we've spoken about. There's an individual, there's a community, and it's a current, that's the language that he uses, again, poetry, it's surging forward of moving from imperfection towards perfection, which resemble the waves and flames uh, upon the body of the sun in a perpetual struggle, shoot forth and give life to profusion of worlds and innumerable... Try reading this in Hebrew. You'll never... Uh, it's like uh, quite... Skip down one, uh, two paragraphs. With the use of words, it is impossible for us to express this thought. I, I, I can't even put into words this idea of just wanting to be part of this current, this, dy- this drama that's playing out in the world around me and engaging in unification, meditating upon names, words are revealed and the soul grows ever more rectified as it aligns itself with this movement of the world towards redemption and towards uh, perfection. By the way, um, I'll say this, a reminder, almost at the end. Return to godliness. Through tshuva, everything returns to its godliness. Through the reality of the power of tshuva, which rules over all the worlds, everything returns and is connected to the perfect God a reality. And uh, lastly, it's number nine in his Orata uh, Tshuva, when one wishes specifically to be a fully righteous person, it is difficult for him to be a Baal Tshuva. Okay, that's, uh, there's lots to speak. If you want to be a righteous person, he says, if, that, if your goal is to be righteous, so it's hard to be in this category of what we all want to be, which is a Baal Tshuva. So what does he mean? Let's see one more line. Let's talk about it. Therefore, it's appropriate for a person to place within his heart the longing to be a Baal This is what he spoke about, that first source of the perfection of the human being is longing for perfection. The, the longing for it is the perfection. That's all that we can have. So here also, it's appropriate for a person to place within his heart the longing to be a Baal immersed in the idea of tshuva and longing for its actualization. So that's what we want, to long to be a Baal There's a, uh, a story I heard uh, years ago, you know, uh, nowadays there are many very well-developed what we call Balchuva yeshivas. What's a Balchuva yeshiva? So they have yeshiva set up, Eisha Torah or Sameach, for uh, young uh, men and women who did not grow up observant and that have now at various stages of their life made a decision where they want to learn more. So they have specific yeshivas set up for them because if they walk into Mir, you know, they'd be lost. So their yeshiva set up for what we call Balchuva yeshiva. So um, now they're very well, even the Balchuva yeshivas have tracks and programs for uh, um, very uh, well-developed uh, young men and women. In any case, so there was a, uh, a certain young man who met a, uh, a Rosh Hashiva. I don't remember exactly which Rosh Hashiva it was. Um, and so in the course of the conversation, the Rosh Hashiva asked the young yeshiva student, where are you learning? What yeshiva are you in? So he said, I'm in Or Sameach, but I'm not a Balchuva. Well, she was saying, for, for Vosnisht, what do you mean you're not a Balchuva? What kind of Jew says, I'm not a Balchuva? What a horrible statement that a Jew would say, I'm not a Balchuva. You're not a Balchuva? You don't say Shimon Esri three times a day, you don't yearn 
to be in Rav Kook's general tshuva of, I'm rising, I'm just, I'm moving in the right direction, I'm doing more today than I was yesterday. You're not about tshuva? Is there a worse thing that a Jew can say about himself? I'm not. How have I? We should all be. We should all be Bali Tshuva. Then, so that's a, therefore, it's appropriate for a person to place within his heart the longing to be a Bal Tshuva. Again, talk about labels. I'm FF, I'm FF, FFB. I, I, don't, I don't deal. I'm not a Bal Tshuva. A Jew is a Bal Tshuva every day. I didn't do anything wrong yesterday. That doesn't, that doesn't preclude you from being a Bal Tshuva of saying today I want to do more than I did yesterday. I know I didn't do anything wrong yesterday, but I could do more today than I did yesterday. I could be closer. I could be more self-actualized. I could be rising more. Every day I'm about tshuva. I would, I would conclude, I would conclude that I believe that Rav Cook, if he were alive and listening in, besides for the fact that he said, you did a terrible job of conveying my writings, besides for that, he would then say, why did you put me in an Elul series? What do I have to do with Elul? You're boxing me in to like one month a year? This is only for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Why, why am I the opening of Elul? This is a 365-day-a-year process of getting on the train and moving in the right direction. Why? Don't limit me. I don't want to be only uh, spoken about Elul time. This tshuva, last line. Then his tshuva will be able to elevate him to the level of fully righteous people and beyond. If you try to be a righteous person, you'll never get there because we're human beings. If you try to be a Balchuva, we'll eventually get as close as we can come. We'll never become fully righteous because ain't Adam Tzadik Ba'olam, there's no such thing of perfection. But the goal isn't to be righteous. The goal is to be a Balchuva. That's the goal. What does it mean to be a Balchuva? I'm always rising. That's just working on the current that exists in the world on a personal level, on a national level, on a universal level of perfection, taking the world from its imperfection to its state of perfection. And every day, both in gradual tshuva, in general tshuva, as he describes, yes, we have to have the specific tshuva for things that we do wrong. But even without that, just to want to be elevating and to be moving uh, towards, uh, towards the goal and directions that we have. Those are some of the thoughts on Rav Kook. Next week, Ritz Hashem, when we learn uh, Rav Yitzchak Kutner, totally different approach. And his work on tshuva, is that number three? I might be out of order. Whatever the order is. When we get to Rav Kutner, uh, there's a, it, he wrote Ma'amaros. There was a start, there was an end, there was a drusha that he would give. Rav Kook was just poetic, just describing all of these different statements, um, uh, various different statements, trying to put them together. Uh, so look forward to continuing this as we see the different approaches, different ideas and um, understandings and the philosophical underpinnings of what it means to be a Baal Tshuva.